Welcome to another episode of Fight the Burnout. Um, today, I am actually very excited about this interview. Um, we have another, um, I would call friend now from uh, what's called Power of Our Story, a group that I joined up with where it's kind of like a peer support group. We started out, I uh, joined up to about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's totally free for first responders. And yeah, we get to talk about what's going on and where we're at. So um, I'm excited to get her on here. She's had a journey. But before we get going, uh, as I always say, take one thing away from today. Get your pen and notebook out or just turn your listening ears on. Take one thing away or one nugget, as I call it, uh, and just start to implement it today. Uh, also, please share, like, and subscribe uh, so that we can get you all the updated learnings and tools. We do this so that you learn from others' journeys uh, so that you don't have to experience the same thing as we did. Uh, so yeah, without further ado, uh, episode is sponsored by create from why. And right now we have a motorcycle retreat that is going to be, uh, actually it's about half full now, uh, that's happening next May through, um, actually through Michelle's kind of close to her area, but through you, uh, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, and New Mexico. If you want to hear more about that, hit the link down below and we will, uh, get on the phone with you, but Michelle, good to have you here. How are you today? Uh, and how is the weather over there in Vegas? Oh, you know, only got up to about 95 today. So we're doing pretty good. <laughs> Positively cool. I think it got to like 75 here in New Zealand today. <laughs> oh, I'd have to wear a jacket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's humid and it's humid. So um, there you no, go. Yeah, you. yeah, no, no, I'll take the dry as well. So Michelle, um, you were a dispatcher, obviously. Um, but as I always like to do is let you tell your story because who better to tell your own story than the person telling their story? So take it away, Michelle, and we will um, yeah, go from there. All right. Well, thank you for having me. Um, so I have been a dispatcher, a 911 dispatcher for about 14 years. Um, I started when I was 19 and it's kind of a funny story, but I was looking for a job in my small little town in California and the newspaper had the clipping where it was like 911 dispatcher. And I'm like, oh, okay, I think that's like something like as a secretary. So <laughs> I went and I took <laughs> the, the California post test and um, passed. And so they called me in for an interview and the interview, it was such a small agency that the 911 dispatcher who was doing the interviews was working while she sat there interviewing me with the then lieutenant at the time who was also sitting in dispatch. And I just remember sitting there watching her operate the phones and I'm like, what did I get myself into? There's no way I can do this. Well, apparently I passed backgrounds and everything and I started and <laughs> I just happened to fall into it. I, I had a knack for it. Um, I thought it was just going to pay for my college because I thought I wanted to be a nurse because I knew I wanted to help people. And my mom was a nurse. So I'm like, let me do this dispatching thing at nighttime graveyards and then get off every morning and go drive to college. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I got got a little bit into the nursing classes and realized that's not how I wanted to help people. <laughs> <laughs> so meanwhile, I'm just really like digging into this dispatch thing. So Fast forward 14, almost 15 years, and I worked my way up. I became a trainer. Um, I became a, the county coordinator for one of the areas that I worked in. I became the supervisor. Um, I worked for three different departments, 
And um, yeah, it was very, uh, it was, it was a jam packed career Um, that it, it was great. I did hit burnout um, a couple of times when I look back and pinpoint that, but I kind of pushed through and I was like, yeah, I, I can do this. We're all tough as first responders. We're good. And um, there was an incident that ended up happening in November that I worked. It was November of 2020 and most horrific incident I ever worked in my life involved a young child um, being on the, on the phone with me, not a young child. He was 12, but in in my mind, he was that little kid. So um, that really, uh, to be frank, really fucked me up. And, but I still kept pushing through. I still like, I was like, no, this, it's okay. It'll, it'll go away. Well, that snowball effect happened. And uh, two months later, I was walking out of dispatch with the intentions of just taking a little vacation for about a month. And uh, it's been almost two years and I have not returned back to dispatch. I'm actually on leave right now and I have an active uh, workers comp case and formally diagnosed with PTSD. So that's kind of where I'm at now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and now you're now you're moving forward into some amazing stuff, and we'll talk about that um, here a little bit later. Wow, 14 years! I didn't realize it was 14 years you were a dispatcher. That's double the time that I was in the police. There you go. Um, well done. Well, th- thanks for all that. And I'll tell you, I'll tell you this from being on the street. I know a different country, but being on the street, um, I underestimated and underappreciated all that comms and dispatch does. Um, when I was on the street, we used to just be like. Fuck's sake, just do your job already. Um, right. And then after interviewing <laughs> a few dispatchers and, and comms operators, I'm like, okay, I get it now. It's actually a lot harder than even being on the street because on the street, I can just tell somebody to piss off and walk away. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or just throw them in the back of the car and not have to worry about them and just tell them to shut up. Um, yes. But um, yeah, no, okay. And also I get to see what's going on. All you're using is one sense. Exactly, yes. That's one of the hardest things yeah which i know we'll talk we'll talk about because that is like as a as a cop on the street for all the police listening um or even civilians listening um yeah we have all of our senses we have our sight we have our hearing we have our smell we have our touch we have all of it our gut feeling even all you have is hearing and gut feeling and yes. so nah it's um and so when you seclude those senses down it becomes it makes things a lot more intense because you start to make up stories which i'm sure We've yes. talked in the past. I'm sure we'll talk about. It. So tell me a little bit about. So you said you started as a at a small a small town, uh, mm-hmm. and then you moved. At what stage did you move to to Vegas? So about three years in. So I kind of did a little back and forth. So three years into dispatching, um, I had come to Vegas when I turned 21, and I had seen Henderson, which I was like what a cool little town. Plus it's right outside of Vegas. So I can just drive for like 20 minutes and be in that lifestyle if I want. (laughs) So, um, I ended up being like, you know what, the next time they open for dispatch, I'm going to go. Plus I was going from 13, let's see, I was making $13 and 61 cents an hour in California. And then the dispatchers out in Henderson had started at 26 an hour. So I was like, uh, Yes, I'm good at my job. I can do this. Yeah. I'll double my pay. I'll double my pay and move. Why not? Right. Yeah, I got less, my first pay less tax. Oh yeah, yeah, no state tax. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's kind of where my trauma ended up 
starting because when I came to Henderson the first time for their police department, about, mm, I think I was about six months in, I was just about to finish and get graduated off a of training, which their training takes anywhere from six months to a year. And my boyfriend at the time, who was back in California, we ended up, I went back for a bereavement leave. I stayed with him. My grandma had just passed away three days prior from stomach cancer. And while we were there, he was kind of wrong place, wrong time type thing. And uh, friends, ex-boyfriend was angry, showed up to our house and ended up shooting and killing him right there in the street. And I was there for that. So that, when I came back to Henderson after taking two weeks off, I was like, you know what? I don't want to dispatch anymore. Mm -hmm. I don't want to hear on 911 about these people's problems that repeatedly call, like I had lost all empathy for any of the callers. Cause I just wanted to be like, really? Like I just watched my boyfriend get shot five times and he died. So I actually quit dispatching for eight months and I moved back home to California and I was like, nope, I went and worked at like a pizza place for a little bit. <laughs> just, I was like, I'm not going to do it. I'll figure out something. Well, my old department in California where I got started, they were hiring again and they wanted me to come back. So I kind of got my feet wet with the local um, county sheriff's department and dispatched for a minute with them. And I was like, okay, I can do this again. This isn't that bad. So then I went back and I worked for five years in my little agency in California, worked my butt off to become a trainer, a supervisor. I, I built my resume because I was like, you know what? Henderson is the cream of the crop. I'm going to do what I got to do to get back there. Mm. And I did. After five years, um, my commander or uh, my administrator from Henderson reached out. And she's like, hey, we're applying, like, come back. And so... I did. So then I ended up back out here. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. No, that's the, yeah. I say this all the time. You put the hard work in and it'll be seen. Uh, okay. Wow. I didn't even realize that, uh, that, that situation that happened back in, <laughs> in California. How'd you deal with it? I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you're blunt about that. <laughs> that. You know, and sometimes that bluntness is what you have to really do to face it head on because I didn't, I ran away from it. I was like, I'm just not going to do the job. I'm not going to, I didn't associate with the people, all of my friends. I dropped all of them who were in that circle with him. Um, a few years later, uh, cause I had, I had nightmares. I had undiagnosed PTSD Definitely. during that. So I had tried a couple therapists here and there and nobody clicked. So I would be like, okay, that didn't work give it a year <laughs> and then I would try to find another one. So it actually took me almost, almost 10 years until I finally found a therapist that I truly worked through all of that trauma with. Wow. Okay. Now, uh, so sorry, just taking some notes. So I make sure we get everything. Uh, there's so much <laughs> good stuff here for people. Um, yes. So it took you 10 years. What was the number, what was the top two things or number one thing that you recognized from, you recognized that you wish you had known back then? I guess I, I probably asked that kind of wrong. I don't know if that made sense. 
it it does. I mean, I'm interpreting it some way. So I'm going to give you an answer. I don't well, know. Give if me an answer. And we'll, then we'll go for that from there. Um, you know what I really wish back then is someone could have told me that you aren't weak mm. to admit that you're having nightmares, to admit that you have these irrational thoughts. And if someone could have just taken me and said, hey, something's going on with you. It's okay to admit that you're not okay. I think I probably would have started the journey to healing sooner. Mm. Why do you think you didn't accept that on your own? I think because I have built my life on, and, and I, through all my therapies, I've learned a lot about this going back to some childhood stuff, but I have built my life on being there for people not being there for me, but I, as a young child at five years old, had my father, my biological father abandon me for drugs and alcohol. So in, in my mind, I wasn't good enough. So my level of perfectionism just continued my whole life. And you, you get this irrational thought that you have to be perfect to be a dispatcher. You can't make mistakes. Otherwise you're put on the six o'clock news. And that would always be the thing you would hear. You don't want to end up on the six o'clock news, you know? And so with building my life where I had to be the rock for everybody else, how can you be a rock if you're saying that, you know, you're, you're broken inside. And so for me, that was not part of my vocabulary at all. Did you ever grieve after that day? Uh, from... The your, homicide? Boy, your boyfriend, yeah, your boyfriend getting shot. Did you grieve at all? I didn't in those moments. I actually did not until about eight years later. Because I wasn't allowed. There was a lot of circumstances surrounding that. That's a whole story within itself. But I wasn't allowed to go to the funeral. And it was a military. He was a military personnel. So I was not allowed to go to base to go to the wake. I was not allowed to go to the funeral. I was banned from the court because I was receiving death threats. So in my mind, I had wanted to go to the court hearing and hear the sentencing for the guy. And I thought that would be my closure because I'm a dispatcher, but I wasn't even allowed to do that. So I've never, never did up until that point. Mm. How'd you find you when you did go back to work? After the, you know, after the eight months or so off, how did you find the, how did you find the job? Like, how, how are you different than before your boyfriend got shot with, call, with was, people that you're on the phone with? Yeah, I, it sounds really bad, but I was not as compassionate. I was a little bit more cold hearted. You know, you hear those stories about the rude dispatchers and I wasn't rude, but I was not. I was the type coming from a small town that when I answered the phone, 911, blah, 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 police department, what's your address? They'd be like, hey, Michelle, it's me, so-and-so. And so I would take that time to build the rapport with my callers, and I had lost that. I had become very direct, and I think that's why when I went back, my goal was to promote yeah. as fast as I could. Get me off the phone. Get me off the radios. And so I threw myself into it. And so instead of healing, I, I threw myself into work and I promoted up so I didn't have to deal with the things, you know, subconsciously that I knew were going to trigger me or make me cold hearted when that went against who I thought I had to be as that per perfect 
person for everybody to lean on. How did you find, did you find that that was like looking back on, I know hindsight's a great thing, um, <laughs> but if we can look at hindsight of other people, then those that are in it can actually go, Hey, actually I can recognize this. I can see this. I can see I'm doing this. This is who I am. You know, and maybe dispatchers, cops out there might be going, fuck, I am that hard person that is, yeah. has no compassion. Do you find, did you, do you find looking back on that time? And I know you've done a lot of work on it. So you've thought about it a lot. Um, <laughs> do you feel that it, and we're talking around burnout, do you feel that it actually caused more drain by not being yourself and having that compassion? Yes, because unfortunately it caused me to lose relationships. So I had a long-term relationship I was in. Everyone thought we were going to get married and live happily ever after. Nope. My job and me, I, I wrecked that shit. It, it went out the window. <laughs> so, and I never had any successful relationships. My personal life was non-existent. I would spend my days off still going into work and doing work off the clock. Um, so that continued. But as I was coming out of that, like when I got over here back to Henderson, I actually think even though it took me so long to get through all of that, I think it kind of helped me to catch the second round, the November incident. I think it helped me catch that quicker. So it only took me two months to recognize yeah. I, I got to do something this time around. I can't spend another eight years. I can't lose the relationship that I have right now. I don't want to lose my daughter. I have a daughter now, you know, so I think things slowly start to change your perspective on everything. Yeah. Age and maturity does that. And just also the learnings and dig in, I'll dive into that here in a second. Um, yeah. So let's fast forward actually to, okay. So, you know, it was that emotional kind of drain and stuff from, from that job. You started to seclude, your, seclude yourself from people. Who were your friends at the time? Cops. <laughs> yeah. How'd and you find friends, that? <laughs> they, they, you know, we could get it. We, we could, we could get each other's, you know, dark humor and, you know, things like that. And, and I wasn't even friends. I, when I go back and I look at the superficial relationships that I had with people, I started to realize that because I was so unhealthy, that even my friendships were unhealthy. My friendships with my coworkers were unhealthy. And so when you start to see that, which I, I didn't start to see that until just a couple months ago. And the people on the power of our story is what helped me see the difference between a superficial friendship and a real genuine one. Yeah. But I had just, I associated myself with cops. My dad was a highway patrol for California. My mom was a nurse for the prison, the local prison. So <laughs> it was easy to do. <laughs> and, and we're not saying don't have friends as cops, but there are those right. friends that are cops. Like I have friends that I'm, that I have people that I'm still friends with that are, that are, I was cops with, but we didn't sit there and just talk about the black humor and talk about the problems of the right. job and all the different, oh, this, you know, talk about all the negative stuff. We are always uplifting each other and we're still friends. They aren't the superficial ones that, that we're talking about. I just want to reiterate that there's nothing wrong with having friends that are cops, but there's also very important to have friends that aren't cops to bring you back to reality. Um, right. because as I say all the time, you become the proximity of the people, you become the average of the people that you hang around with the most. Uh, yes. and so if you're, if you're hanging around with negative, cynical, PTSD, everything's bad people, <laughs> you're going to see that. I'm yeah. not saying that that's necessarily cops that goes for criminals as well. Why do you think criminals become more of criminals when they go to, after they go to jail, 
Well, guess what? They're hanging around with more, more dangerous criminals than they probably were right. outside of prison. Um, yeah. And, you know, there's proven stuff around that. So are there are any of those cops that you were hanging around with back then that were trying to help you, that were saying things? Can you recognize any of them that you were hanging out with back then? Um, prior to Henderson, no. Anyone from in California, no, because it was built on the need to be there for everyone else. So a lot of my friendships were built on, you know, the people who wanted just whenever they needed something, I was the person to come to. So then when I'm, I'm broken, then I'm finding myself around these other people who are just so negative that it was either they needed something or they were negative. And that was all I found myself surrounded with. Um, Henderson, when I came back here, it was a little bit different. Luckily, the culture was a lot better for the police department. And a friend who was trying to help me is the reason why I was able to walk out of work on January 7th. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, gotcha, gotcha. Cool. Um, just real quick with those ones, because I just want to bring a little perspective with people in that. If you look back at those that you were hanging out with in California, the people that you were that you with, obviously, you felt like you were always giving to them, they were, you know, you were serving them never being served by them, as I say, or you know, you were always being drained by them never being filled by them. Um, do you believe that because you were in or, you know, tell me your thoughts on were you in such a negative drain state because of the environment that you were in because your boyfriend had been shot there, you weren't able to have closure, you were still grieving from all of that, that your mind was looking for the fact that they were all negative, they were all sucking from you and that they weren't actually trying to give to you at all? I think so, because I think in my head, if I could help enough people, it would make up for the guilt that I carried from my boyfriend's death. It would make up for me feeling so negative, so not being able to sleep, having the nightmares. If I could do enough good, it would counteract all of that stuff. That was what I, I genuinely believed. And there was no moment where I stopped and said, you know what? Am I healthy enough to help anybody? Mm. I did not have that at all in my head. Yeah. Yeah, no. Um, I, yeah, it's it's so very true. Obviously, our thoughts have power over everything. What do you believe was the reason when you went to Henderson, you started to shift your focus? So it was a couple of things. Um, I found a good therapist, one who was trained specifically with first responders. Was that um, right as you got there? Or was it a little while? It was it was about a year into me getting there. So that year before you, that year into it, before you found the therapist. Well, that's all training. So you don't really have time to think about much, but you know, what also changed my perspective coming to Henderson was at that time when I came back, um, when I started at Henderson, I had a one, two, a six month old uh, and I was a single mom and she changed my perspective on everything. I realized like something's got to change because I can't lose her. She'll have nobody else. So that played a role. So I didn't have time to hang out with people. I didn't have time to create a social life. My social life was my daughter. And if you so did have any social that, life, it had to, they had to be uplifting people because you wanted your daughter to be a good person. Right. Perfect. The perfect well, storm. Mom. Yeah. The perfect storm. So. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Good storm. Okay, cool. Awesome. So then you, then you started to see a therapist and, and, and what happened from there? Um, so in the midst of all this, you know, in case the trauma can't really just be cemented in there, um, <laughs> uh, 
this year in mark was when i had met one of the dispatchers a male and we had started kind of a relationship um he was three months out of uh, rehab for alcohol, being an alcoholic, and he actually ended up relapsing. And there he was, there was some domestic violence. And so I'm going through all this for almost a full year with him, but luckily had found a good therapist in the midst of it. But that added more trauma that I had to work through. Um, yeah. So, and then I, I started this creating this friendship with a few of the moms up there in dispatch and our, our girls would play together. And that was kind of what pulled me out of it. It, I was in a vortex still, and I had found it continuing in Henderson because here I found this person who was sucking me in further to, you know, his demons. And here I, I hadn't even dealt with my own. Somebody so, that you could help. Yeah, yes, yes, because I have a savior complex or had. I'm working most, on it. Most most police and first responders do. <laughs> That's why we do it. We've got a hero complex. Yes. Gotta be the hero. <laughs> it sucks. <laughs> it sucks, but it, it helps a lot of people. But yeah, it, we gotta be a hero for ourselves as well. Just a reminder. Yes. Hey, you taught me we gotta be a hero for ourselves first. Okay. Yep. That <laughs> then is, we that can is help the everyone one. else. Yeah, be it for your first, for yourself first, and you'll be even more of a hero for everybody else. Um, yes. Okay, so yeah, so you had the domestics going on and that, and it has far out. You have had a journey, haven't you? We haven't <laughs> even got you... through it all. Right? Yeah. <laughs> nah, I love yeah. it, man. This is this is some good this is some good stuff. Like if you are if you haven't taken down a notebook of notes, like I've got <laughs> sticky notes of the galore here, and I had to stop taking notes so I could just. Otherwise, I'm like, holy crap. So if you don't have yes. a lot of notes on different things that you can implement in yourself so far, like, yeah, like you may, might yep. want to check and kind of go self-check. Where am I at? Um, but yeah. anyways, okay. So, Michelle, so you got that. You got a six-month-old. Sounds like maybe about a year old now. Um, yep. <laughs> and, you know, this stuff's going on. What made you – I guess, did this bring up – if you're honest with yourself, did this bring back uh, – did this bring up childhood traumas as well? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, yeah, it just, it, my childhood was filled with, you know, knowing that people could leave you because of substance, whether it was drugs, whether it was alcohol, you know, and there's extended family members who I saw the same thing. You know, there was, there was some other traumas that I went through in my childhood. So yeah, everything gets replayed. It's like it's stuck on the replay button. And then you're like, well, if it happens to me now as an adult, I can just work through it. I can do better than when I was five years old. <laughs> you know, you don't even so know you're old. actually saying that to yourself, but it's subconsciously you're going, I can make right. this better. I can help this person because I couldn't help my dad <laughs> yep, <laughs> or my yep. mom. And you know, and you know what the saddest part is? I came out of my childhood. Here's the message I took from my biological father abandoning me. My message was, I am never going to abandon someone the way that 
he abandoned me. I will never let someone feel that hurt. So here I am staying in these unhealthy relationships with these people who I have no business in being in relationships with, but it's because I can't be the one to leave. I can't make them feel abandoned. Have you know? Did you notice? I don't know how your the, your boyfriend who who passed away um, was or anything, but did you have a pattern of the same type of guys, and they like literally mirrored what your dad was? Yes, I did, except for the the one who passed away. He was the only one who did not fit that pattern. Ironic, but <laughs> but no, it 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 isn't though, and it it now makes sense why you were affected by it so much because it was this person and then they were taken away from you. So and then oh, you, yes. you said you said it, I'm not good enough for this. I've got to help people. I'm not good enough to help myself. And because exactly. the person that wasn't your dad is all of a sudden taken away and you could do nothing about it. You weren't allowed to grieve for it. And literally it right. just, it's the whole cycle. It, it's over again. And so then you dive into a relationship where, oh, well, if I can't have that, then I may as well have, and this is all subconscious guys. This is not a conscious decision. This is subconscious until all. you release that subconscious. And then you can go, oh, I can see this pattern. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know now. <laughs> yeah, I can see this pattern. And I know now you're happily, you know, you're engaged and you got a, you know, great relationship. Right. And, uh, and I can see this pattern. <laughs> Life is patterns. Yeah. Like everything is patterns. It's, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> um, okay. So I want to jump forward to the, 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 I know you've had a few kind of, it sounds like a few like close to rock bottoms or what some people would be like, oh, that's Michelle's <laughs> rock bottom. But no, there was that fateful day. And I have yes. my fateful day that I remember that I didn't learn from it until ages, years later. Um, well, I, I know my fateful, fateful day when I almost cheated on my wife. Um, and that kind of was my, who the hell are you? Like, I couldn't look in the mirror. Yeah. Like, at that point, I couldn't look in the mirror anyways. And at that point, I was like, no, I'm done. I was like, my life's over. And so I started to crash my whole everything down, asked for a divorce, just started to end everything. Um, luckily, I have a very, 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 very strong wife. She literally is scary sometimes in a good way. Um, <laughs> I love her dearly. <laughs> yeah. But our counselor said for us, 80% of people will not make it through this. Yeah, I believe it. And so were you with your now fiance when you had that fateful day? Cool. So yeah. you're you're part of that 20%. <laughs> good work. Um, so let's talk about that fateful day. Walk us through it a little bit, as much detail as you want to. I know you've done a lot of work on it, but I don't want to make you relive it in that. But just walk us through a little bit about what kind of really hit so hard. So I kind of have to preface it in case I haven't thrown out enough um, traumatic events. <laughs> so my now fiance so amazing. Um, we actually dated back in high school. Um, so then we, we lost contact for about 16 years and then he hit me up and everything. And now we're here, but we were dating at that point. He was still living in California. I was here in Henderson. So in September, September 18th is the anniversary date of my boyfriend who was killed. So that's always kind of like a, a, a sensitive time frame for me. Um, but I was out visiting my fiance and we got a call on the morning of September 9th. His mom had unexpectedly passed away. So we had drove down to where she was. We didn't realize she was still there and that the coroner hadn't come yet. So when she was wheeled out to the coroner, um, that gave me some flashbacks that I had to deal with. Okay. So we had that happen in September. Um, and then we, 
we're trying to work through all that. We get to November. November 3rd is when I went into work on overtime. And I rarely worked overtime, but this, I, two days that week, I decided to work. So it was a Tuesday. I went in, we got our asses handed to us. We were slammed with calls from back to back. And I was the on-duty supervisor. Um, got a call. I picked it up. It was 911. Um, ladies telling me that she heard shots fired at the apartment next door to her. She walks out. She sees one woman down with a headshot wound uh, to the head. Another neighbor had come and was trying to do CPR on her. And she says, I can hear a girl yelling for help inside the apartment. Do I go in? And I'm like, ma'am, I can't tell you to do that. You have to do whatever you feel is safest for you. And she's like, okay, I'm inside. I'm like, okay. okay. <laughs> <She's>, like, <laughs> we don't okay. know if the shooter's still there. We don't know nothing at this point. So she goes inside and she's like, oh my gosh, there's another woman down another she's she's been shot and then right next to her is a 16 year old girl yelling for help because she's been shot in the abdomen so she's bleeding out so I tell the woman I'm like give her a blanket or something have her apply her own pressure and then you go to this other woman let's start CPR um so we're doing that meanwhile we've got other phone calls coming in now it's an apartment complex it's in a busy area of Henderson so all my dispatchers are we're we're going it's a hot incident so as I'm trying to finish up with this lady, cops are arriving on scene. She's like, okay, the cops are here. I'm like, don't stop CPR. Wait until they take over. Keep me on the phone. Well, my other dispatcher comes over and she says, hey, I need you to get on my, my phone call right now. I'm like, hold on. Like, I got to finish up on this. So I end up hanging up with her, hand her over to officers, and I end up getting on the phone call. As a supervisor, I'm able to click into anyone else's phone calls. So I click in. She's on the phone with the suspect who did the shooting and he has taken the 12 year old boy hostage and he's got him in an SUV down in the parking lot, but won't tell us where and come to find out afterwards, we had officers running by him. Nobody knew he was there. Um, just real quick. I'm just going to preface this because I kind of have an idea of the, the, any of this and I have heard it for those that are listening and watching trigger warning this could trigger things so be just be aware michelle is actually taking us quite deep into detail on that so just want to just want to emphasize that um yeah so carry on yeah. michelle and I, I should have said that too in the beginning i apologize <laughs> that's okay no it's it's fine these things happen and anybody who's been listening for a while is just more for new listeners than that i want to just make sure because if somebody's gone through something serious situation just like you saw the you know the corner rolling out your your, you know, your, your fiance's mom brought back flashbacks. This could have that, have that, have that effect. And so I just want to, um, just preempt, preemphasize that just so people are prepared so they can prepare themselves. They can pause it. They can take a yeah. few deep breaths. They can close their eyes, visualize where they want it, what they want out of this, where they want to get to. And, um, yeah. And just, just kind of calm themselves down, calm that heart rate down because it might already be raising and just bring awareness to yourself there. Um, so yeah, yeah. Thank, thank you, Michelle, though, for, for going in this, because I know it's one, it's ther probably therapeutic for you, but two, also people are probably going, holy crap, I can relate to this, you know, and, and that. Right. So, so the cops are running past, they don't even, haven't even seen him. Was he hiding or was he just literally sitting in well, the car? Do you know? He was just, he was sitting in the SUV. These things happen. And, <laughs> yep. He wasn't, he was very, um, mentally unstable. Obviously he just, you know, killed three or attempted to kill three people. So, and he's taken someone hostage, but 
you know, he was saying some crazy things on the phone call, but he told us, don't talk. He said, if I hear you, I'm going to shoot this boy. And so here we're stuck on this phone trying to pull all this information out and we're typing like crazy and, you know, to get everything relayed. And this part, I won't go into detail of, but this little boy was tortured in a way and things, you know, he did not have a good ending to his life. And, um, he did end up the, the guy did shoot the, the little boy, um, while we were on the phone in that moment. And I, I go into detail of this because people don't realize that moment where it kind of flips your brain. But in that moment, I turned to my radio dispatcher, my voice broke for the first time in 14 years of my professional time, my voice broke and I had a hard time holding back tears. And I said, he just shot Jacob, who was a little boy. And I remember being instantly ashamed of myself because my voice broke in front of my dispatchers. I'm their leader. And that right there caused a lot of almost immediate turmoil. Mm-hmm. Um, they end up finding the guy. I We stayed on the phone. They had a shootout. I, they took the guy's life. The officers did. Um, thank God none of our officers were, were hurt or anything like that. But the weird thing is, is even after two, almost two years now, I still have like blackout spots of that incident. I don't remember the whole rest of the day, but um, I just remember pieces here and there. I was so unhealthy that I sat down at my desk the second the incident was kind of like considered code four. I sat down at my desk and as a dispatch supervisor, it is our job to pull recordings, the phone recordings, the radio recordings of incidents, and we send those to court. So I was like, I can't have any other dispatcher listen to this. I can't subject my supervisors to listen to this. I got to look after everybody else. Yep. And so I re-traumatized myself within an hour of the incident. And I pulled that full 26-minute phone call of this suspect and that little boy. And I pulled the phone call of the neighbor finding the three, the two women dead and the 16-year-old girl alive. And I, I pulled all the radio traffic, re-traumatizing myself, listening to the officers scream and yell out commands at this guy. And because I had to do it, I told myself I had to do it so no one else would have to listen to it. That's how unhealthy I was. Yep. Which so, is, which, which, which I'm sure listeners in that, and thank you, Michelle, for, 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 you know, going through all that. And I know you've gone through a lot and I know. You know, I asked you to be on this episode, this 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 podcast, like I think it was like a year ago or six months ago, something. It was and you're a like, while no, ago. I'm, I'm not ready, and and you no. guys can all see why. You can see why. You know, I've known Michelle for about 18 months now, and wow, she's grown, and it's amazing to see. But and you know, I praise you for for saying all that. But I want to reiterate right there the the re-traumatizing yourself. There's two things here, and this is what I've learned as a coach and as a neuro-linguistic programming and all the different stuff that I've done myself on myself is one, yes, like you said, you didn't want anybody else to go through the trauma, which is a great reason to do it, but you didn't know how to deal with it in the first place. Right. Yeah. 
And so when you don't know how to deal with it in the first place, what do you, it's just going to reconcrete it in and all the, I want to know what was going through your head around after that moment, like when it all settled down, it was all done. It was code four, as you called it, or it was, you know, it was all dealt with and done and, and you were off all the calls and then you're like, okay, I've got to get these, these recordings. And you went into, I have shit to get done. The let's yeah. just, I got my, I've got a job to do. Yeah. Um, what were the things going, can you remember what the things were going through your head? Like what you were second guessing yourself about the, the I call it the demon. I know you call it yeah. something different. I call it the demon. What was the demon saying inside your head? I'm curious. And I think it will help a lot of listeners in that as well. They might be able to relate with it. And so my thought, I can't recall in the immediate moments. I, this all happened at 11 AM and I got off shift at two and we were just, I was nonstop trying to get everything done. One thing I will say, and if I could go back, I would do it so differently. We had another supervisor who came in because she heard about this incident and she was our um, employee assistance, like the EAP type. She had been trained for that type of stuff. So she came in and she said, do you want to go off the floor and talk? I said, no, you need to check with, and I gave her the list of the other two dispatchers. I said, please check with them first. So I wasn't saying no, like not me at all. But then she came back to me when everything was done. And she said, hey, what do you need me to do? I said, well, I need you to post overtime supervisor stuff. And she said, do you want to come? I said, no, because the second I get off this floor, the second I take this headset off, I'm going to break down. And I want to wait until two o'clock when I can clock out and I can go home and I can cry in my bed or on my couch and not have to put myself back together to walk through all my coworkers. Not and I wish if I could go back, I would change that. And I would have stepped off and talked to her immediately. Yeah. Yeah. Why would you, why would you change that? Cause I think it would have helped in those moments because I went home to be alone. Hmm. I went home. My fiance was working in California. It was a Tuesday. I wasn't going to see him until Saturday, you know, or Friday night. So I went home to sit in my thoughts. I didn't reach out to anyone. Nobody reached out to me. And if they did, it was a phone call. I, I shut my phone off. I didn't want to do anything. My head was going crazy. When I got home that night or that afternoon, that's when everything started coming, my thoughts, or at least that's when I can start remembering them. And the guilt of every area, I, I played that second by second and went through and said, well, you did this, but you didn't do this. And if you would have done this, maybe Jacob would still be alive. That's what I kept telling myself. Did so, you... and then, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say my, my team, I was convinced my team thought I was weak because my voice broke, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's interesting what we tie, what we tie to a, eh? like you're, you've, you're tied, you've tied so much stuff to the fact that all oh, my voice broke. So I'm weak. Yeah. They've all think that I'm weak. When was your next shift? So I went to the debrief, the fire debrief that night at 430. And so yep. when I was there, the two dispatchers, the one who worked fire and the other one who was on the same call with the suspect as I, they, she told both me and the other dispatcher, Hey, you should, you guys should take some time off. And I'm like, no, I've got tomorrow off. And then I start my normal shift on Thursday because I worked Thursday through Sunday. So I'm like, I, I got a day off. We're good. <laughs> like, and, the, and the other dispatcher was like, yeah, I've got two days off. I'll be fine. 
Yeah. So I went back to work Thursday morning. And how was Thursday? Oh, it was shitty. <laughs> so my, my, uh, my administrator came in about somewhere around eight or nine in the morning, I think. And she said, Hey, I just wanted to check on you. I didn't get to see you Tuesday. Like, are you okay? And I think you call it the fine demon. The fine demon came out and I said, Oh, I'm fine. What's funny about it is I don't remember any more of that shift until the very end when I took my lunch break before I got off work and she comes back in and she said, Hey, this incident is so bad. We are actually, we're not, we're doing something that's unprecedented. We're going to put people on mandatory administ paid administrative leave. And we're going to require you guys all to see a psychiatrist who's going to have to clear you to come back to work. And she said, so we put the two dispatchers on leave. So she said, I need you to be a hundred percent honest with me right now. How are you? And I just broke down crying and I said, I'm not okay. I can't get Jacob's voice out of my head. And she said, Michelle, why didn't you tell me this this morning? And I said, because I had to go back out on the floor and work my shift. I wasn't going to cry to you and then have to try to fix myself up and go out and work with my team. And she just shook her head and she's like, get your stuff and go home. Mm -hmm. And so I was, we were all put on leave. There was 17 of us in the department who were put on mandatory leave, which I think I, was great. How did, I, I, I think that's absolutely wonderful, especially with the mandatory, you know, seeing a psychologist and that. How did it make you feel though? Oh, I felt like a failure. Mm, why? Like that is, it was the worst thing. Our supervisor offices were tucked back in the corner from the comm center. I had to walk through the whole comm center with my bags, knowing that I was leaving because I felt like it meant that I couldn't do my job and that everybody was staring at me, watching me walk out of that comm center. That was all completely irrational when I look back on it now. But instead of being like, guys, I'm going to get help so I can be healthy. It was, I fucked up. Hmm. I fucked up and people died. Did anybody ever tell you that you did the right thing before you went on leave? Uh, so I actually, no, before I went on leave, no, cause this all happened in November. And then I went back to work after three weeks of forced leave. I went back to work until January. So during that time, no. So my life got, I did the, I was out three weeks and then I went back to work because I told the psychologist I'm fine. I knew everything I had to say to get him to release me to go back to work. And all I wanted was to go back to work and get some normalcy in my life again. So I go back to work, not the best thing to do. I was still having nightmares. I was still, it was, I re-traumatized myself by watching the public, um, every, our department releases YouTube videos of the recordings anytime we have a shooting. So we, yeah, we all got a text saying, hey, this is gonna be released. If you guys want, we can view it all together. And I was like, no. I wasn't going to watch it, but then the thought in my head was how much are they going to release to that phone call? Because my family's going to hear it and I need to tell them not to, not to watch it. So I sat in my room by myself and I, I watched it and my calls were so bad that they only played about 30 seconds of both calls for the public because they couldn't even play anymore because of how bad they, how traumatizing they were. And then I had to watch the body cam. I didn't have to. I watched the body cam footage that lined up 
And I tell you, the horrific thoughts in my head that I put together with all the sounds on the phone and the radio. Well, the, th- the, sound, the sounds that you remembered or that you had interpreted right. and created. Yes, not far <laughs> I want to reiterate that. The sound, like, you know, I, I, I believe that going back and in a safe, safe place, going back yeah. and listening or watching the stuff again can um, create some pretty good um, rehabilitation. Sorry, one second. Um, but uh, with that also... If it's not done in a safe place, it can re-traumatize you. But what it can do is if done in a safe place, in a safe situation, in the right way, it can get rid of and eliminate some of those stories right. that you create in your own head. Because I have stories about an incident when I was in the police where I felt like I was a failure, where I felt like I let down my partner because she got assaulted and she left the job. And I've got my whole story. And I actually haven't ever talked to her in depth about what happened that night. Huh. I've gone back and done visualization techniques and stuff like that to re-bring it out so that I can actually go, well, no, that actually isn't the story. And get coaches yeah. to ask me things about it and stuff like that and to really challenge my brain of, is that really what happened? And see, that's interesting because when I went on, when I walked out of dispatch for my last time that following January, then a few months, I think, of being out on leave, once they finally realized this was it wasn't just a short vacation. I actually went to breakfast with one of the dispatchers, the one who was working the radio for that incident. And I told her, I, it was my first time admitting to another dispatcher that I felt that I had let the whole team down because my voice broke. And she, oh my gosh, like it was definitely a bonding moment, but she looked at me and she said, Michelle, there was no other supervisor that any of us would have wanted on on that incident with us and you doing that you handled yourself amazingly like it, it and it just it like broke this bubble in me and i i like remember just being a blubbering mess over it and i'm like wow that's how they viewed it and here i'm all twisted up in my head about it yep. so it was yeah, that is definitely a defining moment. Because we we create stories. We create so many different stories in our heads about stuff. You know, I use the example of you see somebody at a party or something like that, and you wave at them across the room. You look at them. It looks like they're looking straight at you. You go like this. You wave at them. And then they turn and they start talking to somebody else. And the story that goes through our head is, you snob. You just snob. You didn't look. You didn't wave back. You didn't roar, all this different stuff when... I guarantee most likely when you walk, if you walk over and you say, Hey, did you see me on the other side of the room? They'll go, you were on the other side of the room. Right. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Because we create stories because again, past traumas about not being good enough about, you know, all those different things that we've talked about today all led up to that moment. And then obviously you had that, that shift. Um, yeah. Now, I know you've done a ton of work on yourself. You've done a ton of stuff over the last couple of years, which is absolutely amazing. What made you go, well, I, I think you already kind of said it, your daughter, but what made you go, I don't like where I'm at. I want to change. I want to make, I want to, like, what was that? Do you have a defining moment where you were like, nah, I'm, I I'm changing? Kind of. So what's interesting is someone else kind of defined that moment for me, I think. So on January 7th, I had no intention of, of leaving dispatch that day. I had no intention of taking a vacation or anything. But over the past two months, I had been burning my time. 
I had been, I just, I was checked out. People started noticing a difference in my work ethic. What were you doing and exactly so people can identify it into themselves maybe? I just, I wasn't there. I was normally a very hands-on involved supervisor, both just professionally and like trying to make the connections with my team. So I would be very proactive in trying to get them to do some trainings or making sure they got rewards for hard work they did. And I just let all that stuff go. I came in, I would try to leave early every day. I would call in sick. Like I had over, I think it was like 300 hours of just sick time because I never took time off of work. I was a workaholic. And I, I had finally just started like every week I was calling in and not enough to violate anything, not enough to need a doctor's note. So I started doing that. And then I wasn't eating. So I was very irritable. I get super hangry when I don't eat. <laughs> so I wasn't eating. My headaches were getting worse. So I was leaving during my lunch hours and I was going to the chiropractor to try to get adjusted because that would help the headaches. Um, it was just, it was stuff like that. Uh, December, my fiance's uh, stepmom committed suicide in case I didn't have enough to deal with in that, in that four months. Yeah. Um, so me and him went through some shit, like for that four months, his mom passed my incident in November. Now his mom committed suicide, December 14th, or stepmom committed suicide. My coworker got that phone call and she's the one that got a hold of me. Um, we were, it's my day off. My fiance was here. We were at home and she texted me and let me know what's going on. So we raced over to his dad's house and I remember telling my coworker afterwards, I'm so sorry I didn't take that overtime shift. I wish I would have taken it because I could have taken that call so you didn't have to. What is wrong with me? <laughs> what is, like, that is how messed up I was. I felt bad that I didn't take the trauma of taking a suicide call. That, no. So even through all that, I'm still, you got to understand, I am still in automatic robotic mode. I am not, my fiance and I were fighting all the time. I was picking fights with him. I was irritable and yelling at my poor little daughter. Like I distanced myself from my family, which is not normal. And my mom would start to comment like, hey, and I'd be like, nope, don't want to hear it. Like I would just shut everybody out. And I would come home from work on my, on my three days off. I would throw on a pair of sweats and a baggy t-shirt. I wouldn't shower. I wouldn't brush my hair. I would go curl up in the little hole on my couch because I have an L-shaped couch. So there's a hole. And I, I swear there's a permanent indentation of where I used to live. But I would I would be there. And luckily for my fiance, he would take time off from California and come up here because I swear that's the only way my daughter was taken care of. And I, I but then it's a cycle because you're like, well, I'm, I'm such an awful person because I'm not taking care of my daughter and I'm doing this way. So let me just sit here and wallow in it even more, you know, and down, so, and down, the, down and down the drain you go. Yeah, I was further and further. And this was just in December. So this was a month after. So on top of that, December, the day before December, let's see, it was December 27th. And we were going to do my family Christmas because, you know, we're all law enforcement. So we never celebrate the holidays on the holidays. So I was working on our Christmas Eve and I took a phone call where an elderly man died on the phone with me from a heart attack. 
And the whole time he's taking his agonal breaths, I'm hearing the fire department knock on the door, trying to confirm if they're at the right door. And I'm like, so my whole Christmas with my family, all I could think of was this old man. And my mom showed up to my house for Christmas and I just broke down crying and I gave her a hug. And I just, that was, I think a starting moment when I was like, something isn't right. (laughs) (laughs) All of that. (laughs) Did you have any empathy on that phone call when he died? Did it affect you at all? It did. Like in the moment, in the moment, did you, did you, did you like? Surprisingly, it did. Mm. Like I wanted to just cry and I was pissed. I'm like, why did the fire department burst down the door and get in there? And like, I went so far. Yes. (laughs) I called the battalion chief and I was like, was policy followed? Did you, did they do everything? I am dead serious. And luckily, like amazing battalion chief, I'd worked with him for quite some time, but he walked me through it. And I I was like, okay, all right, fine, whatever. And my mom's like, you know, just remember like this old man, he died with, you know, someone on the phone. At least he didn't die alone. Trying to be the positive. Yep. Trying to do the positive thing, which is, yep. Yeah. So I finally was starting to get that whole, like, hold on, (laughs) something's not right here. So I proceed to go back to work for two more weeks <laughs> and it was my coworker. She was another supervisor and she actually, um, she had some very traumatic, traumatic stuff in the past that took her, she was off of work for like a year and stuff. And her and I had kind of bonded over that, but she came up to me and she's like, I know you're not doing good. I see a lot of me and what I went through. I see that in you. And if you don't go talk to your manager right now, I'm going to do it for you. And I remember it's clear as day. Like I can't remember a lot of stuff yeah. from this time this, it's a, it's a, it's a it burn, but, burnout. One of the symptoms of burnout is memory loss, short-term memory loss. Yeah. And it's no joke. Like oh. I, I've never had this bad of memory before. Yeah. <laughs> so, I still have blank spots in my career as well because of it. It's, isn't yeah, that crazy? it's And it's slowly coming back years later. Like I'm five years post police and a lot of work and a lot of visualization. Yeah. And it's slowly coming back. <laughs> But it's, it's still, crazy. it takes a lot of work. It's, it, it is, it's creepy. I thought I had dementia because I got dementia in my family. I literally was <laughs> holding, I was holding on to that on my own as well, going, I think I have dementia, but I'm not going to tell anybody because then I look weak. <laughs> What's wrong with us? Well, I remember this day. I remember getting up from my desk and I'm just, I'm, I'm mad, I'm irritable, I'm tired, every negative feeling. And I'm like, all right, whatever. I'll go talk to whoever I got to talk to just to Let's get this over with. Let me go give lip yeah. service. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I walk into is my administrator on and she was the same one who was there for the incident in November. And I said, <clears throat> Hey, um, I'm not doing too good. And I literally, that was the floodgate. Everything poured out. Like I was crying. She called the um, employee assistance, the uh, guy to come up. They both sat down, talked to me, told me what my options were. And I'm like, it's January 7th. Okay. Yes. I'll take some time off, but I think I just need till the end of the month. <laughs> and that Two years is, later. Yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> So wow. that was, yeah. <laughs> Have you talked to your supervisor since? I've talked to her a few times. Yeah. And yeah. I've thanked her. So. I was going to, I was going to say, it sounds like you had a great supervisor because so many of us aren't yeah. that lucky. I know I didn't, I, one of my supervisors was great, but wasn't my direct supervisor, but most of them weren't, I didn't feel they were all that great. It was, yeah. 
yeah um again it's just how they were brought up within policing and things as well you know they they hadn't worked through a lot of stuff and all guys and you know and and that yeah. but um not nah, wow michelle like so much <laughs> so much stuff there like that is that is insane yeah. and uh, i i couldn't like i don't know if, you, if people were watching or maybe it came through on thing and you probably saw i i couldn't do anything but laugh because literally it was like you were telling my story Oh, really? <laughs> it was literally like not the exact things, like the exact trauma yeah, in that, but, but those... the actions that you were doing was yes. my story. And I haven't, I've been like, I try and rack my brain all the time on different stuff, but like you doing it, I was literally visualizing myself coming home, sitting on the couch, watching TV, going, I really need to go work on that four wheel drive because I need to get it done. Like, I really don't want to go work on that. I'll just watch another episode of this. And literally, yeah. like, uh, there's no motivation or drive at all. And anybody who knows me now, like I am, uh, people think I'm the motivation guy. I'm like, right. <laughs> and so, and I could, but I want to, because I'm, I'm conscious of, uh, you know, like I could talk about this stuff with you for, for days and there's so many things. Um, what are some of the things that, you know, I know you've, you, you've said some stuff, if you could rewind, but what are some of the stuff that you wish somebody had taught you in the very beginning? You know, I've gone back over this a few times and I really wish that even before getting into law enforcement, I wish someone would have told me like, really make sure that you know who you are and who you want to be. Because I was 19, I came out of a perfectionist, you know, graduating from high school and I was, I was in my formative years and I go straight into law enforcement. And then that's, that was, that became my identity. So right now I am in my mid thirties trying to figure out who's Michelle, because I'm not a dispatcher. Dispatching is what I did. Mm. So if I could have had that grasp on it, it's actually the advice that I give some of the, my friends who are going into dispatching. I have one friend, you know, she's going into it. And that's what I said, make sure you have firm understanding of who you are, because this job can fuck you up if you let it. And like <laughs> it did, it did with me. But I see where I'm at now and where I've come and what I've learned in the past, you know, year and a half to two years. And, you know, it, everything happens for a reason, but I wish I didn't have to go through all the trauma to get here. <laughs> yeah, imagine if you could collapse all the knowledge that you have and teach it to one person at the very beginning of their career. They wouldn't have to go yes. through 14 years of it, 16 years exactly. of it. <laughs> <laughs> Um, nah, okay, cool. So, you know, really know who you are and it sounds, it sounds very familiar. sounds like you may have learned <laughs> that from somewhere. Um, like some Chris guy helped me with it or something. Yeah. Helped you with, <laughs> helped you with really knowing that kind of, that, that sentence, but no, I'm glad that it's, that it's stuck. And I know like so many people on power of our story say the exact same stuff. And I sit there, I sit in the back and I go, oh yeah. I <laughs> um, not to float my own ego, but it is, it is very true. And it's something that I talk about all the time. I want to know real quick, actually, I just this popped back in my head. And it's something that I said earlier that I really want to know your partner still with him, mm -hmm. still together. Yes. Obviously there was a lot of you taking your own crap out on him, just like my wife got and being yes. the punching bag, as I call, as I call it, she was the punching bag of my emotional punching bag all the time. Like one story that I use all the time, you know, those cake carrier tins that, you know, that you can get like oh, the, yeah. pull the cake that you take to a dinner party, you know, so the cake's in it. Yeah. We went to a dinner party and we came home at 2am and she had left that in the back seat and she got out of the car and at 2am in the morning, we had to park our car on the, on the road 
2 a.m. in the morning, I am screaming at her. Why are you not doing anything? You don't do anything. You're useless. Rah, 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 at 2 in the morning. Yeah, I'm afraid. If that's not trauma it. and that's not something showing up in alarm bells, I don't know what it is, but it didn't show up. It didn't, it didn't register for me. Um, yep. But yeah, so uh, yeah. What was it that, you know, have you talked to him about why? Why, like, and how did he support you through that time? So he was dealing with his own trauma too like with his mom and his stepmom and everything. So in January, when I, when I took that time off of work, when I left work, I went home and I said, I gotta, I gotta tell you something. I've never done this with anybody before, but I'm going to lean on you. I need help. And it was something that I had never asked anybody before. And he said, I'm going to do my best. And remember he was dealing with his own trauma a week later he ended up saying, I, I got to take some time to myself. We actually broke up for about uh, two and a half months. And it was hell on me because now I felt like I was feeling that too. So he went and he actually got therapy and he, in a like healthy way, dealt with all of the trauma that he was dealing with. And then we reconnected. And I said, look, I'm still in the middle of my healing path. Like I'm not all the way healed. Uh, you know, I'm nowhere near where you are. And he's like, it's okay. I'm healthy. So I can be here to support you now. So we joke about it now and we call it his sabbatical. So, <laughs> but, but it's even to this day, <laughs> even to this day after all of this trauma and everything, there are still moments where I will get triggered and I'll take it out on him. I might snap at him or something like that. And he'll tell me sometimes he doesn't know what to do. So it's kind of like, he's just, he's going with the flow, you know? And so the most important thing is that I've, I've talked to them at every day. I feel like I start to learn something new about me how to do better and how to heal better. And I share that with him because I don't have any other choice. If I want to keep him and I want this to be a healthy relationship and soon to be marriage, I have to communicate it with him. So that was a big thing for me. I'm so glad you guys have recognized that because, and I apologize for my dogs. I decided they heard something. Um, so, um, but no, that is so important. The communication side, because my wife and I, the same thing, we literally this morning, I literally was this week's just been hard for me. I've had some triggers and some failure stuff and some, am I good enough? And I'm working with, I'm talking with departments and I'm doing a keynote speaking thing and all this different stuff. And I was like, and I've been really distant the last week and a bit because I've been preparing for this and feeling like it's not good enough and I'm not good enough. All the same stuff that comes back yeah. up. And again, this morning I was just like, my wife came to me and you know, that communication and I, I'm glad that you said it. I'm just going to tell my little stuff so that people can hear it in a different way as well. Literally, what was it? Two nights ago, my wife's sitting on the couch and she pauses the TV while we're watching it and she goes, are you okay? And I go, and I'm getting emotional about it because this is the bond that we have now. And I didn't have this and I wish that I did back in the day. And I'm sure you did, You <laughs> wish that you had this as yep. well is I'm like, I'm like, yes, but no. I've got stuff going on. She's like, do you want to talk about it? I was like, no, I'm just, and we learned this from a, a coaching thing that we went to and a, a relationship stuff was part of it. And it's this, sometimes guys just need to go into their man cave and their mental man cave. <laughs> yes. And you'll probably recognize it with your partner. Sometimes he's just yep. 
just needs to be left alone for a bit and work out his yeah. stuff and then he'll come back to you. And I was like, I just need to sit in my man cave. And she's like, okay, well, when you're ready, I'm, I'm here. And this morning I text her after, because she went off to the airport this morning, I went to the gym and I texted her this morning. I was like, I'm sorry, I've been having stuff going on. I'll give you a call later on today. I've just got this and that. She's like, I just want to make sure you're okay. Yeah. And that and that's what it, it's massive. so important. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, one of I, the things that yeah, go ahead. I just, just something to kind of help. Um, I'm not, even though I'm a female, because I was kind of my formative years, I feel like so much was spent surrounded by law enforcement. I'm not good with expressing my emotions. So I've actually learned and it, it was hard to start doing this, but I've learned because I will wake up still and I will just have days where I'm waking up and I'm, I'm ready to fight the world and whoever's in my way, like you're, you're taking the brunt of it and who's always in our way, our partners. So I've actually learned and it's really worked very, very well, but I've learned to, if, if uh, my fiance has already gone to work, I'll just text him. Or if he's out on the couch watching soccer or something, I'll go and I'll tell him, but my very first communication, when I wake up, it'll be, Hey babe, just so you know, I'm having a sensitive day. I call it a sensitive day, but you know what? He knows, he knows to kind of like, okay, like we're just going to chill. We're going to, let's not bring up anything. We got to make decisions. <laughs> but then he also, he also knows that if you explode at him for some reason, it's not personal. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or if I start crying, yeah. oh, I hate it. But I will be like, oh my gosh, that was the most beautiful shaped cloud I've ever seen in my life. And I'm crying like a friggin' lunatic. You know? it's, it's you. It's, it's interesting. I'm glad we're having this conversation because um, I, for the longest time, I don't need to do it so often anymore because there's not that many days that are like that. But for the first few years of me coming out of law enforcement, going through a lot of different stuff, working through all these things, I spent a ton of time and money and everything, every course and every development stuff that I could do, I was doing it. I, I literally every cent of my business that I earned, I earned six figures that one of those first years and I spent all of it back on myself. Like Good. my wife was like, and her and that, and it, it helped everything. But where I'm going with that is that there was days where I would just text her and she'd be at work at the time she was going into work and I'd text her and I'd be like, it's one of those days. Yeah. And she's like, she's like, I'm here. If there's anything I can do, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's it. That's, a, that's all yeah. you need to hear because it, that's all that, that you just need to know that you have that support and that, you know, that if you do need something, you're there. Um, but then there's also that you know, I want to talk about that emotional kind of floodgates, the kind of <laughs> as law enforcement and first responders, I don't care who you are, male, female, it is a very alpha dominated yeah. alpha driven very masculine state it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you we both have masculine and feminine traits. Mm -hmm. It is a very masculine. Sadly, a lot of times it's a toxic masculinity. It is an ego-driven masculinity. And that yeah. ego-driven masculinity is a thing of you can't be a feminine. You can't be feminine because it's weak. And it's right. absolute BS. And this isn't just law enforcement. It's also a lot of corporate stuff in that. Not so much anymore, except for some of those ones that have been around for a long time. But when we stuff things away for so long, our body has no idea how to regulate it. I talk about it with my adrenaline. My body's just starting to get to a stage where adrenaline's kind of is 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 controlled well. But as first responder, even as a dispatcher, you're running on adrenaline all the time. What's that next call going to be like? What's right. the, what's going to come through? Is it going to be somebody that I'm going to have to deal with? You know, passing away. Is it somebody that's you know, got a gun? Whatever whatever it is. 
And so you're always on this high alertness and you're always pumping adrenaline. And so unless you learn to calm and you learn techniques to do that, like breathing techniques, box breathing, things like that yeah. early on. I did seven years, you did 14, 14 years of running on adrenaline. Your body has yeah. no freaking clue. 14 years of stuffing emotions away. Your body's like, what is this thing called emotions? Right. Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and so then it kind of floods back because it's like, it, it's, it, it still tries to stuff it away in ways. And then, yeah. and it takes time and that, and takes certain techniques to really learn that. But I'm glad that you said that because I'm sure, I'm sure somebody right now is going, yes, but I stuff it away or yes, that mm -hmm. does happen. Like, and I just think it's so bad. And so tears are a great thing, guys. Yes. yes. As first responders, we can't have tears flying out while we're <laughs> helping the coroner put a body into a bag. Right. But afterwards, sitting in your patrol car and just letting it fucking flow. Yeah. Not sitting there going, oh, fuck, I'm going to have to retidy myself. Who the fuck cares if you walk out and your eyes are bloodshot as shit? People are going to actually ask you what's going on. Yeah. And that's where the communication, like we already talked about, comes in. When you communicate it, when you're like, yep, uh, that last call was shit. And yeah. it's hit that nerve and it's playing that string. Let's fucking go. Let's, let's plan a rock concert. And I yep. need a minute. You know, I know when I had an incident, I have my female partner that I was working with get assaulted, came back to the station and my boss at the time, he was really good. He goes, Chris, get off the computer. And I was like, no, I got shit to do. We've got to do an opposition to bail. We got to do all these different, all this paperwork. And it's already coming up to our shift change. It's coming up to the end of our shift and everybody's helping out with the paperwork. Everybody's doing stuff. And he goes, no, Chris, go have a cup of coffee, go have a cup of tea, go have some water, go whatever. And I was like, I don't drink coffee and I don't drink tea. And he's like, well, then just go sit in the meal room in the other, in the other room and deal. The only thing with that is I went and sat down and like you, the whole thing started to go through my head again. And I was just like, no, nah, I can't do this. I was there for like, I shit you not 30 seconds, got back up, walked back in the other room and sat down on the computer. Only thing that I wish somebody had done is I wish that sergeant had actually just taken me into the other room and gone, Chris, what's going on? Yeah. How are you doing after that? I know that it's shit. It's crap. I had this incident happen to me in my career. Lay it on me. What's going on, brother? But do you notice too, how you did, you try to put up so many roadblocks for yourself? You're like, oh, no, yeah. I got to type up this stuff. No, it's almost the end of the shift. No, I don't even like coffee. He's like, yeah. just get in there. <laughs> exactly. Go take a breath. Like, but yeah, we, you know, and it is, and it's, it's, it's all those stuff and emotions away. And so, you know, I want to praise you for all the stuff that you've done and thank you for sharing today. Um, one of the last questions I always like to ask is what is your top tip to self-happiness, Michelle? What would be your number one top tip to self-happiness from everything that you've learned and grown through? You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about this and I've kind of had, it's a quote that I've grown up with my whole life. I think I heard it on some childhood movie or something at some point, but it's become very, very prevalent in my life right now. And I can, I can explain it a little after I say it, but the quote is never let the fear of striking out, keep you from playing the game. And I tell you why this is so important to me right now. And it was, it was with the help of my therapist who I'm currently seeing. And she told me, you are not, what you do for work is not who you are. The great thing about leaving dispatch is that you can do anything in the world. And she's like, 
if you want to go work at McDonald's and you decide after two days or two months, you don't like it, you can quit and go find another job. And I'll tell you in that moment, when she told me that I stopped and I was like, Oh, she's right. Because for 14 years, every move I made centered around growing my career in dispatch and first responder world. And if I struck out there, it could mean the end of a career. If I made a big enough mistake, it could be career ending or I wouldn't promote or something would go wrong. And so now I'm learning that no matter what, I I can do anything I want and it won't define me as long as I've got my own self that I'm, I'm keeping myself healthy and happy. Um, nah, I, it's yeah, so important. You said it, you can't say it much better. I've heard that quote before. I don't know where, but yeah, I can't remember where I heard it. I don't know where it's from, but it is powerful. And it's the same thing that people say around, you know, to entrepreneurs and stuff. You need to have a, a hundred, every entrepreneur has had thousands of failures to have their one successful day. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah, you have to have it because you wouldn't get to where you are now without all the past. Exactly. Nah, I love that, Michelle. Now, I know you're not doing anything yourself. You're currently doing your master's. You're going to be one of those brainy people with like letters and stuff before your name. Um, yeah. And, um, and you're going to be way smarter than I am uh, or ever will be. Um, sure. But... <laughs> Um, but it's just the title It's not who you are. Um, exactly. but you'll work at it. Um, if somebody was like, Michelle, I resonate with you. Uh, what is the best way for them to get in touch with you? Obviously safest way. What's the best way for them to get in touch with it? We'll put the link down below. Yeah. LinkedIn. LinkedIn yeah. is definitely my professional, um, side of things where it's the, the new me, uh, all the other social medias, I'm not active on. You'll see the profiles, but nah. So LinkedIn is the easiest way. <laughs> cool, love it. So we'll put your LinkedIn profile link down below so people can reach out if they if they so choose. Um, but again, I want to thank you so much, Michelle, for telling your story, telling everything. And uh, as you can tell, <laughs> I can totally relate to like 99% of it. Obviously, that's 1%. I didn't have to go to any of those... Um, yeah, I didn't have to be on those. Oh, I just can't imagine only having, like we said it in the very beginning, only having that hearing sense and actually having no, in a lot of jobs, not knowing what the final outcome is. I've talked to dispatchers and I've got clients that are current dispatchers and comms and, you know, phone take, call takers and that. And they have no idea what happens at the end. And having that and so much unknown. All- like yeah. you guys, uh, my hat comes off to you guys, like <laughs> literally bad hair and everything. Because <laughs> at least on the street, I know what happens. You know, I can look it up and I can be, and I know you can look it up on the computer, but I like, I literally am involved in part of it. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so I take my hat off. You also organize, you guys, dispatches in that, uh, organize where everybody is. You've got the eagle eye view, um, which, yeah, we might, give, street cops might give you, give everybody crap, all the dispatchers crap and, and all that, but know that, um, any good cop on the street will it's like a brother sister relationship that's what it is but because of that you'll find too with dispatchers and anyone who may be out there who's still trying to figure out if they're battling ptsd or not the dispatchers um my biggest trigger is sound um certain certain sounds and i can't be in loud crowds because of the sound not necessarily because of the heightened 
um, vigilance or anything like that. That's part of it too. But, but sound, we get very, uh, very triggered. Well, so. you're using that sense all the time. So you hone it really well. Yeah. Um, awesome. Michelle, any last words before we wrap up? I don't think so. I really appreciate having me on here. It is very therapeutic to tell your story when you're ready. So I appreciate your patience and accepting me to come on once I was ready. But I'm definitely at a spot where I'm able to talk about it. And I really appreciate having this platform. Hopefully it helps somebody out there. <laughs> yeah, I know you did. I know you definitely did that starfish analogy that I've used so many times before. You definitely have helped that one person. I know you have you've helped me just by hearing it and going, yeah, okay. Yeah, those were real, real like, yeah, the counselor said it and I've heard a few times, but they're real, real um, symptoms that you know, that I had and still some of them still linger around at times they pop back up, they rear their little demon head and go, Hello. And, <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I want to thank you again. Um, and thank you for coming on. I know this is your first actual official podcast for being on. So it's been amazing. Yes. You've done excellent. You should do a hell of a lot more. Um, <laughs> And um, yeah, so for all the listeners out there and viewers, thank you for being here. Thank you for giving Michelle the place to be able to do it. If you want to know more, you want to come, maybe your first responder, uh, police officer, dispatcher, whatever, you know, any kind of first responder, you want to learn more about Power of Our Story, um, I will put a link down below for the um, for the LinkedIn page for that as well, because it is a great place. And that's how Michelle and I met. And it's, it, we, we talk things out and you can tell your story there or you can just come and listen. Uh, but also... Uh, this is um, sponsored by Create From Why, as I said in the beginning. But if you are struggling with anything and you just want to have a chat, I'm always here to chat. I'm always here to have a conversation with you. Maybe you just need some tools, some free tools real quick. I run master classes and webinars and stuff on things. Just reach out to me at Chris at knocking, like knocking on the door, demon, like the ones in your head, uh, coaching.com. So that's Chris at knockingdemoncoaching.com. Uh, and we will... Um, get in touch with you. Otherwise you can hit any of the links down below and, uh, and reach out and we will see you on the next episode. Remember, take one thing away. And my motto is always train hard physically and mentally. And so those test days when that demon comes a knocking and he will, or she will, you are, uh, you are most and best prepared for it. Thank you guys. And, uh, make sure you share this around with somebody that, you know, peace out.